Amazing Church. Welcome to the Oasis Church. If you're new with us this morning, we're so excited that you've come to worship God here. Uh, our church is unapologetically a Christian, Bible-teaching, God-exalting, gospel-proclaiming church. And so today, what we want to do is we want to dive into probably one of my favorite stories in all the Bible because it reveals to us how God takes an unbelieving heart sets it on fire for himself, and then turns it around so that they can walk according to God's word. I've been asked to preach this morning by Pastor Scott on something that is significant to our church, and it's that one of your staff members, myself, moved from the guitar and the microphone into an associate pastor position in our church. And I wanted this morning use this passage not as some sort of an eisegetical trope on my job, but to show you why I've shifted. Why didn't I go to another church? Why am I staying at the Oasis Church as an associate pastor? And it's because we believe as a staff, as the elders, that God has a mission and a purpose for your heart. That God is going to move you for his purposes, to equip you for his purposes, to build the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And so every week you get to do some churchy things. One of those is you come to church. And you get to be taught the word of God. Ephesians chapter 4 says that our job as pastors is to equip you for the work of ministry. Now here's the deal. If you came to our church meeting, our members meeting a little while back, you got to hear me talk about this. That we equip you at a 30,000 foot view here. But you then need to go and submit yourself to God's word and to discipleship. So that we can get God's word activated and rolling right on the ground where you're at. That's my job. My job is to help equip you for the work of ministry. And so if you don't hear anything else this morning, here's your job now as it pertains to me. And here's my responsibility as it pertains to you. Send me an email, text me, call me and say, Seth, I would like to meet to talk about God's purpose in my life. I would like to find out what the Bible says about me and how I can walk more faithfully according to God's word. And what I'm hoping will happen for you is if you do that, if you meet with me or if you meet with another person in our church to discover that purpose, you are going to experience what Cleopas and his buddy do today, which is God is going to activate you. He's going to turn your heart on to see him clearly so that you can start walking correctly. And when you start walking correctly, do you know what God does? He glorifies himself. He builds his church, and we get to watch people moved from darkness to light. And so that's where we're going this morning. Here's what we're going to look at. Have you ever had a burning heart? I want to talk about this burning heart language at the end of chapter 24. And then we're going to talk about a couple main points. One is this. We don't believe the gospel, and so we leave it. We don't believe, and so we leave. We don't understand, and so we don't stand. Um, we're going to ask, what is the fuel? What is our heart's desire? Why is this whole chapter focused on the heart and the mind right together? The heart is integral in our direction. We're going to meet Jesus, the gardener and fellow traveler. We're going to show that Jesus is not giving them a sign. He's giving them the word. That Jesus establishes faith according to his word. He establishes your path according to his word. Then we're going to talk about how faith is perceived in the heart, not the head. But faith is received in both. And it is lived out by both. You cannot live your life for Jesus with just your heart can't do it. You cannot perceive Jesus without your heart being turned on by Jesus. 
Jesus is interested in both your mind and your heart. And lastly, we're going to land the plane. Let God's word be the fuel, the filter, and the compass. So if you're in your cars, you're welcome. If you're not, I'm sorry. Let me pray for us, and we're going to get started. Father, we love you. Thank you for gathering us today that we might study your word. God, I pray this morning that you would edify us through your scripture, that we would understand it, it would become clear, and that you would challenge us in our hearts, that we would not be able to leave this place unchanged. God, that your word, like a good scalpel in the hands of a doctor, would carve us up and heal us. Lord, we ask you to wound us and sew us back up. We ask you to take what is broken and mend it, what is lost and find it. Lord Jesus, we trust you this morning. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. I want to talk about a burning heart. Have you ever had a burning heart? Do you know what that, that references, that word picture feels like? There's a couple ways I think about a burning heart. I've had it a bunch. It's, a, it's when you've got a victory, a memory, or a future promise. It activates something emotional inside of your soul. The heart in Scripture is always described as the seat of human emotion. And so in, in uh, the word cardia in Greek or the word um, for heart in the Old Testament, it's never referring to the organ that's pumping blood. And so when it says you got a burning heart, it's not talking about, you know, the nachos you ate or, uh, or you, you know, your, your next doctor's appointment or a heart attack on the... Not something like that. Rather, it is talking about the very essence of who you are. The heart is the seat of your soul. It's the place that moves you. And so the way a New Testament person might think this, they'd say, what is moral, what is good, what is emotional, what causes me to move in the world is my heart. Why I do what I do. It's my motivations. Have you ever had your emotions burning within you? Have you ever had yourself so excited or so zealous or so just pumped up to go do something that you just, you had to tell someone? Or you're just sitting there, you're thinking about it all the time. You got a thing that you're looking forward to and you're Googling it, you're researching it. You just, you're obsessing over it. That would be a good example of what it feels like to have your heart burn within you. I think about when I was 13, I was on this baseball team. My dad was coaching. We were in the finals. It was the last championship game. And one of our guys hits this awesome, just like uh, three, (laughs) he hit like a three-run homer to have us go up by one to win the game in in the bottom last inning. I was the last run to hit the home plate when we knew we were going to win. And my dad, who was the third base coach, came running down the line to almost tackle me, which almost got the game disqualified. His heart was burning within him. His son's team had won the game. It cost a sense of victory, an experience of triumph in your life. Did you get that job you applied for? Did you get the girl you were dreaming about? Did you get the kids? I've blessed you with. There are moments in your life where the very seed of your being just burns with passion and love and hope. So we've got victory. That's one place where that's activated. The other is in memory. You know, we just had Memorial's Day. And one of the things that just gets our hearts pumping is a sense of remembering where we've been and what we have done. I can't watch a good war movie without feeling a little, you know, like warrior, warrior burning heart come up in my soul, be like, man, this is amazing that we got guys who lay their life down so that people can be protected. That sort of virtue stirs the heart. That comes from somewhere. And as we remember those things, we can be stirred in our hearts. Lastly, a burning heart can come from a future promise, something that hasn't arrived yet, but it's on the horizon. 
I'll never forget the day Michelle came to me and said, Seth, you're going to be a dad. I'm pregnant. Instant gasoline on the fire. I felt like this dad gear click in my brain. It was like this little like ratchet was going clink, 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 dad mode activated. And then I remember holding my son and being like, wow. I mean, my heart was just burning within me. Everything changed. Everything had shifted. My whole focus was no longer just about me. It was about this beautiful baby. And then I found I was going to have a second son. And it was just the whole process deepened. And then I found out I was going to have a daughter. I was like, I don't know, man, rocket fuel on the heart. We understand what it means to have a burning heart. Here's the warning we've got to look at today because we're going to look at two guys whose hearts are not burning for Jesus at the beginning of this story. Quite the opposite. They are literally depressed. They're sad. They're described as sad, and they are talking about the things that have let them down. And then Jesus is going to show up. He's going to affect their hearts. So we've got to understand our hearts can be affected in wrong ways. My heart can burn for things that are not of God. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures? We're going to talk about why that's significant, but understand that there are things that can happen in your life that cause your heart to burn, and they're not of God. You can long for things that are not for your good, and your heart can want it. You can wish you had things and, and idolize things. Your heart will stir for things that are not of God. John Calvin put it this way. He said, the, the heart is an idol factory. It finds things to burn for. And so the question is, what is causing your heart to burn? That's the question we're going to look at this morning. Let's take a look at the text. Starting verse 13, it says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Let's start with these two guys. We got uh, a guy named Cleopas. We'll get his name in verse 18. The one of them named Cleopas. Cleopas is most likely the person who gives this story to Luke. He's going to be the guy who is actually the eyewitness of this account. So when you think about Luke as an author, the, the book of Luke is a compilation of all the firsthand accounts of Jesus. And so Luke writes the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We just finished that in our reading plan. And so you'll notice about halfway through Acts, it goes from this stuff happened to I saw. So you get like the personal pronoun I about halfway through Acts when Luke hooks up with Paul and starts traveling around with Paul. It's partially why I believe the Lord puts Luke with Paul as he wants us to know what Paul was up to. And so he puts an eyewitness account who's going to actually be compiling the things with Paul. But here, Luke would not have been here. He would have to have been told this story. And so Cleopas is going to be the guy who tells us about what happened on the road to Emmaus. It says that very day. Which day? This is the day of Jesus' resurrection. We're about mid-afternoon right now in the day, which means early that morning, the women had come to the tomb and found what? That it was empty. And that's the context Right before this, it says in verse 1, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They go, they tell Peter. Peter rises and runs to the tomb, stoops, looks. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This stuff already happened. Here's the deal. Cleopas and his boy are going to hear about the resurrection from the women and Peter. And then they are going to decide to, to leave Jerusalem. Take a look down. It says, 
They were talking with each other about all these things, those things, the things in verses 1 through 12, that Jesus had died, and now his body was missing. And they're not sure why. They don't have a reason. Believe that he has risen from the dead. They don't believe the promises. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. You got to love the humility of Jesus. The condescension of Christ is one of the most fascinating things you can study. Jesus rises from the dead, and he doesn't show up glowing like a nuclear power plant, but he gets mistaken for a gardener. And now he's just the random guy who comes up behind you on the trail in Sabino Canyon. You ever been on a trail out here, have someone come up behind you, and you're like, I know I should get to the side, but they're not going that fast. Maybe they'll just, and someone starts like tailing you, but they're not passing you. We hate that in our culture, don't we? We jump off the trail as quick as you can. Go on, sir. Go on. In this culture, that, that would have been a great opportunity to catch up on local news. Where are you from? How, where are you walking to? What's going on? How's your mama? Right? Jesus walks up on them the way a common traveler would walk up to them. They're leaving Jerusalem. They got a seven-mile walk ahead of them, and Jesus just happens to be where they are. We know that Jesus starts doing this pretty crazy teleport thing, and yet he is so human He looks more like a gardener and a fellow traveler. He reveals his humanity in this passage. He's going to reveal his divinity as well. Jesus walks up to them and went with them. Now, here's what's interesting. It says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I want you to understand that the reason God reveals himself in human language is so we can study passages like that. It doesn't say they didn't recognize him. It says their eyes were kept from recognizing him which means God is not interested in them seeing Jesus as he walks up. He's interested in them in knowing who Jesus is, and they don't know who he is. How do we know that? Jesus said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. That's the first clue you have that this is not a trip of faith, that they didn't hear the news and they're off to tell the people in Emmaus the news. They're sad. They're not happy. They're not hopeful. They're not thinking about Peter's testimony and the women's testimony as being a good thing. They're saying, stuff's going down. It's not what we expected. We're out of here. We're going to go somewhere else. We are now taking things into our own hands. But they're sad. Why do we get sad? Because our expectations get shattered, don't they? You ever hope something would happen and didn't happen? Do you feel good about it? No, you're sad. These guys expected Jesus to be something else. They expected him to demonstrate his power in a different way. They expected something else. They didn't understand. So Jesus isn't interested in showing up and being like, look, guys, I'm alive. They need to understand what happened. They need to have their hearts correctly tuned to Christ so that they can correctly see Christ for who he is. They've seen Christ for three years, but they didn't understand. And so Jesus doesn't want to just give them a sign. He's going to give them the word. But let's get back to them. They're sad. What do they think about what happened? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Pause. That lets you know that Jesus' crucifixion was not some side show. This wasn't something that happened in the dark of night that no one knew about. Like everyone's talking about Jesus. His trial, as corrupt as it was, as hidden in the night as it was, did not stop this from being a major event to the public. 
when Jesus came in before his crucifixion, he's coming in on a donkey. They're laying palm fronds on the ground saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, here's the king. The whole city's in an uproar. This has been a political coup in Israel. What things, Jesus says. I love Jesus, and I love Jesus for a bunch of reasons. One, he saved us. Ain't that great? But Jesus is also a goofball. He's a people watcher. If you read enough of Jesus' stories, you'll notice Jesus loves being the fly on the wall, watching people do their thing, and then helping people understand why we do what we do. There's one story. He's in the temple with the disciples, and they're literally sitting back watching people give offerings, which I think is just the goofiest, funniest thing. Here's the God of the universe is sitting against the wall watching you put your tithe in the box. And he's then giving a commentary to the disciples on the level of heart that is involved in the giving. Guys, that's funny. Jesus is watching these people. So he watches one guy. He's like, yeah, that guy gave out of his abundance, not interested at all in that sort of a gift. And here comes this woman, gives her last two pennies. He goes, guys, that's true faith. That right there, because she doesn't have anything else. This is what faith looks like. He's doing this all the time. He's in the temple. He's watching. He'll walk by guys, and he'll I, I love Jesus for this part. He walks up. He disguises himself from them being seen. So he's just a fellow traveler, and they're like, you don't know? He's like, well, tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about what I just did. I would love to hear what you really think about what just happened. We need to learn from that. Jesus is interested in you talking to him. And he's interested in you not just giving him like your best answer, but giving your honest answer. When you talk to God, when you pray, are you honest with him? Are you just trying to formulate a bunch of religious phrases so that he'll be happy with your prayer? Or are you going to talk to him as if he's the guy walking along the road with you? Will you let Jesus in? I think that's why Jesus disguises himself here. Not because he doesn't have a purpose and a plan for Cleopas and his buddy, but because they would have told him a false answer. If they knew it was him, they would have tried to make it up. And instead, they reveal exactly where their hearts are. And Jesus ministers to the heart. Look at what they say. He goes, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed. Hold on to that word, prophet, and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. Now, this is interesting. All of Jerusalem wouldn't have known this part. They're including something else. First part, yes. Hey, there's a guy, he was a prophet. Do you notice that he's not the Messiah? He's a prophet. He has been demoted from wherever he was before the crucifixion. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You're the Messiah. You didn't figure that out. The Holy Spirit revealed that to you. He has already made a claim to his divinity and his Messiahship. These guys in the inner circle should have said, we thought he was the Messiah. They don't say it. They say, we thought he might have been the one who was going to deliver us, but we never saw him as more than what? A prophet. That's significant. How many of us come to church every single week and we're, we're, we're coming, we're doing the deal, we're, we're giving the tithe, we're singing the songs, and we have not yet seen Jesus as our Savior. 
Maybe he's the head of a big religious organization that structures the world for you, or maybe he gives you a good reason to do the right things, or maybe he's the thing that's going to keep your kids off of drugs and out of the streets. I don't know what Jesus is to you, but here is what he is to them. He was a prophet who was wrongfully killed, and someone they hoped would bring about a different outcome. But then they include this other part, which is not common knowledge, because it happened 12 hours ago. He says, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. You got to love how God nuances the text. If you're looking for repeated terms, what are, you, what are you looking for here? They don't see. Jesus walks up, they don't see him. They can't see him. He's being hidden from them. The people go to the tomb, what do they not see? They don't see Jesus. We got to see Jesus. If we don't see Jesus, we don't have salvation. But rather than believing what the women have said and saying, oh, this lines up exactly what Jesus said he would do, they don't see the truth. They're blind. They cannot see. Jesus responds, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Let's talk about point number one. Guys, we do not follow Jesus because we do not believe. I don't believe, and so I leave God's purpose for my life. I don't believe, and so I don't receive salvation. It's the absence of belief that reveals a heart of darkness. And so if you're running your head to the ground trying to live a religious life, you will be very sad like Cleopas because your expectations over and over and over again are going to be smashed. Jesus will not be at the helm. If Jesus is shaped in your image and you've got an idea of Jesus that's not going to be helpful for you because your version of Jesus cannot fulfill your expectations. Jesus points to the heart. He says, you didn't believe what? Your hearts didn't believe him? No, what the scriptures said about him. Their hearts were not set on fire by the very revelation of God that revealed the Messiah. And so when the Messiah went through his suffering, they were confused. Their hearts were not quick to believe but rather slow to believe what the prophet said would happen to him. We don't believe, and so we leave. We don't understand, so we don't stand. Church, we have got to pray that God would take those things that we don't understand about him and correct us so that we can know when to stand. How do I love my wife? How do I raise my children? How do I worship God? How do I tell the gospel to a culture that doesn't like the gospel? Which is, by the way, every culture that's existed. But God doesn't care about that. He goes and he flips cultures on their heads. So when does a Christian retreat to the mountain? And when does the Christian come charging down with his Bible waving over his head? When do you act with boldness? When do you stand tall? When do you stand firm? It's when your heart is set afire by Christ. Jesus tells you when to do these things. He tells you how to structure the entire world. But he starts where? In your heart. 
We got too many people trying to structure the world before they structure their hearts. And if I structure the world before I structure their hearts, what will I get? Maybe a generation of forced labor. That's best case scenario. But what we want is the hope in Christ, the hope that these guys don't have. What is the fuel of our heart's desire? What is the thing that drives you? That's something you should spend some time talking to God about. When you get up in the morning, what gets you going? Where is your heart moving? What goals do you have for the next five, 10 years? How does Jesus invade those things and radically shift them from your goals to his goals? Your walk to his walk. Which path are we on, church? Are we walking away from Jerusalem because we are sad? Are we sitting on the side of the road wondering what our role is in the kingdom? Are we frustrated because someone hasn't given us marching orders? Or have we just been slow to believe? Do we put ourselves under God's word? Check this out. Jesus reveals himself through his word. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I'm not going to lie. As a theology nerd, I would give anything to go sit underneath that teaching. Anything. But wait a minute. Guess what? What did Paul write in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? This is a verse you must memorize. You cannot live the Christian walk without this word. You can't. 100%. You will fall flat on your face if you don't know 2 Timothy three sixteen. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is sufficient for training you in righteousness. Which means, guess what? These guys, they wrote down what Jesus said in that walk to Emmaus. Everyone is longing for a vision. Everyone is longing for an experience with Jesus that is unique to them so they can validate what's going on in their hearts, but they want to avoid the revealed word of God. We want to avoid it because this requires me to interpret my life through a lens I don't understand. Why? Because it's not my heart. I have to learn God's heart. I have to know God's heart. God has revealed himself in his word. Cleopas doesn't get to see the risen Jesus. Not yet. Not until Jesus firmly establishes the right theology in the heart of Cleopas. That may sound counterintuitive to you. Wouldn't it be better just to like show up like a blazing star? Like, look up, check it out. I'm here. It's done. Victory. But here's the thing. What is Cleopas' job? What is the church's job after this moment to go tell everyone what Jesus has done? You know what they don't get? They do not get Jesus as a burning, radiant star. They get the story, the testimony. So here's something that's interesting. You may think seeing is believing. Faith is salvation, and faith starts in the heart. I can't properly see until God gets his word in my heart. Jesus reveals himself through his word. He goes from Moses, that's talking about the first five books of the Bible, the law, the prophets. 
If you want to go reread your Old Testament, a good question to ask is, where is Jesus here? Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? There's a great little book by Norman Geisler that says, to understand the Old Testament, look for Jesus. He's all over it. I'll give you just a couple of examples, my favorite ones. Genesis 3.15, it says, hey, Eve, your seed will be at odds with the serpent's seed. He tells the serpent, you're going to have a war, but guess what? One of her kids is going to kill you. And then he tells Eve, guess what? You're going to have some kids. You desire your husband. She then says, hey, I've got Cain. The Lord has given me a new man. Cain shows up and he goes, I'm not the guy. Kills his brother. They have another guy, Seth. Seth has a bunch of kids. One of those kids, his name was Lamech. You know what Lamech names his son? Noah. You know what Noah means? Rest. You know, what Noah, you know what Noah's dad says he named him Noah for? Maybe Noah's the one who will take away the curse. I want you to think about this. Genesis chapter 5, eight or so generations after Cain, after Seth, you've got people talking about their longing for the Messiah. They're looking for the firstborn son, the one who's going to take away the curse, day one. Here's a couple things that does for you. It means you have to take Genesis 1 through 12 as literal history. You cannot write that off as mythology because the very essence of the gospel is baked into it. To dismiss the first 12 chapters of Genesis is to dismiss the entirety of the Bible. You will be philosophically at odds with Jesus. Jesus goes from Genesis then to Exodus. And you just begin to trace this line. It's all about the kid. The whole story is the kid and the enemy trying to kill the woman and kill the kid. Here's another phone. Did you know when David goes to fight Goliath, that Goliath is described as being covered in giant scales of bronze? Do you know what the same word for bronze is the same word that we derive the word serpent from? If you were to read this in wooden Hebrew, this is the goofiest thing. It says, and a giant came out covered in snakes. Scaly armor. What does David do? He cuts the head off of that big old snake. Who is David? The great, 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 great granddad of Jesus. He's one of the types. The Old Testament is constantly casting this story that there will be war between the serpent and the woman, and the kid wins. And yet intermingled with all that, what do you have? Sinfulness, suffering, failure. Adam fails. Abraham fails. Noah fails. David fails. Solomon fails. They all fail. And then the New Testament starts with the birth of a baby who doesn't fail who perfectly lives out this revealed law, this revealed will of God, is the perfect hope from Genesis to Revelation for you and for me. To know him and to know who he is, to understand the very nature of who he is, is what it means to put your faith in Jesus. He cannot be some abstract Jesus that you made up in your head. He has to be the Jesus as he reveals himself. I must know the true Christ. And I have to reject all false Christ. So check this out. Jesus reveals himself through his word. I am, can't wait to get up there and be like, Lord, I know you gave us the word. I still want to hear it. I want to hear you, I want to hear you say it. Let me hear you preach it. I'm hoping that'll be something that we get to do in heaven as it'll just be this like theater that has this one on repeat. You go sit there and be like, I know you filmed this, Lord. I'm like, you can do that. Faith is perceived in the heart, not the head. We need to understand this, that our perception of Jesus starts in the heart that Jesus activates the new heart. 
Why is that? Because in the Old Testament, it's revealed in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is incredibly evil. Who knows how bad it truly is? But God weighs out the heart. We're also told in prophets that our hearts are stone. They're dead. They have to be made alive. And so the first thing that happens in your walk with Jesus is Jesus turns your heart from stone into a living thing that can perceive him. He does that through his word. Ephesians 1.18 is a prayer that Paul has for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you would know the calling to which you've been called. Did you see how he connected the mind ever so subtly there? I pray that the eyes of your heart, how do I see? I have to see with my heart. It's not about what I see with my eyes. It's about what God reveals to my heart. But why? Why does my heart have to see? So I can know. So that my mind can understand what it sees out here. How do I know what's right out here? Because God has made clear what is right in here. I understand the word in the heart and it moves up to the mind. A lot of times people will try and start with the mind. I need to rationalize Jesus and then get that down into my heart. No. You need Jesus to open the eyes of your heart. He does that through his word. The more you encounter God's word, the more Jesus will burn your heart up for who he is. Faith is received in both. It's perceived in the heart, but it's received in both. And faith is lived out by both. I cannot be a good Christian out there without my brain. Why? Because God says so. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, with all your mind. I'm called to use my mind. You're not called to be an imbecile. You're not called to be a toddler in the faith. You're called to receive Christ in your heart the way a child receives a father's hug. But you're called to grow up and you're called to use your brain. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, God wants a child's heart and a grown-up's head. I think that's a perfect representation of what God tells us in his scriptures. That I receive Christ the way a child receives the love of his parent but I follow Christ with all the faculties that he as creator has given me to use. Here's the deal. If you detach the heart, what do you get? Second Corinthians. The rulers of this world, they don't get it. They think it's foolishness. They're using their brains. You cannot think your way through God. But when God puts his spirit inside of you, he connects your heart to your head, and suddenly what was foolish is wise. Why? Because you are perceiving God. And here's the hard stuff, church. And this is going to be our last point. Let God's word be the fuel, the filter, and the compass. If Jesus reveals to the heart and uses the mind, and he cares about everything that you do, the great commission to the church was go baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. If you were to look up the commandments of Jesus in the New Testament, in fact, just in the first four books, the Gospels, I'm just curious, in your mind, put a number there. How many commandments do you think Jesus gives in the first four books of the Bible? If you're in my home group, don't say that loud. I've heard anything from like two, right? These are the greatest two commandments. Love the Lord your God, all shame. Your second is like it, love your neighbors yourself. That'd be like a good summary, but no. The answer is 400 plus. Jesus has 400 imperative statements in the, in the first four books of the New Testament. Think about that. Go do this. Do this. Do this. Do this. There are 400 of them bad boys in the first four books. Does that not surprise someone? Does that seem like a lot? 
I thought law was bad, Seth. Didn't the Pharisees get in trouble for all the 600 things or whatever? Like, yeah, they made those up. But if Jesus said those 600, they'd be good. I got to know what Jesus tells me to do. But here's the thing. I can't do what what Jesus tells me to do if I don't know who Jesus is. So here's what usually happens in our culture, all right? Being a Christian meant something for the last 100 years. It was largely a social stratum. How do we know that it was a social thing and not a spiritual thing? Because it didn't stand the test of time. You're watching the erosion of culture in real time at light speed. Why is it eroding? It's not because people woke up this morning and were sinful. It's because the church did not do her job. God has not saved these people. So how do I change their hearts? I'm going to meet them on the road, and i got to tell them about Jesus. Because unless the heart changes, what, what commandments could I give them? The reality is most Christians don't know the first 10 of those 400. Because we don't live our lives trying to submit to Jesus. And this is where it kind of like, don't worry, I'm pulling the knife out of my own ribs, okay? But I want you to ask some hard questions. When you signed up for school, when you picked your college, was it because that's where your dad and your granddad went? Or is it because that's where Jesus told you to go? When you picked your career path, was it because that was your aptitude or because that's what Jesus called you to? When you picked your job, was it because it paid you the most or was it because it's where the best churches were located? When you picked your spouse, was it because they made your heart burn or because Jesus' word made your heart burn for them? As you're raising your kids, do you love spending Sundays going to the park and watching them play ball or do you want their hearts to burn for Christ? That might be more of a Houston problem. It's too hot here to play ball. We're constantly doing things that our hearts are burning for. Very rarely are we stringing those things through the word of God. Superficially, we will go to God and say, I don't know if there's like a morally good or bad thing in this, so I'm just going to assume you're down with it, and I'll do it Christianly. Baseball can't be against God. So I'm just going to make baseball fit with God. That's called synchronization. And that's exactly what our culture is doing today. Fit Jesus with what we want him to fit with. The problem is, is eventually you get beyond these weird little neutral things like baseball and you get into things like gender identity. Things that are actually running up against reality. Baseball is something you can discern based upon your life. Gender identity is something you cannot. We are literally having crazy talk as a culture because we are crazy for not having looked at the Bible to build our culture sooner. This happens on a cycle team. If you would pick up a history book and read it, you'll see man revives, turns to God's word, face plants. God revives, turns to God's word, face plants. And the face plant is always built around our desires and pushing God's desires to the side. The result is always the same. It's death. So here's the thing. You can be mad about that and say, I wish the world was different than it was, but I promise you it is an adventure to go out into that culture and say, we're going to live absolutely differently. The next time someone asks you, why did you pick your job? You're like, I don't know. Or I do know. I wanted to make a lot of money. But now God is pressing on my heart how to do things today. Church, I want you to understand that the church has a real weight to bear. Do not be confused. You are called to speak the truth. You're called to speak the truth in love, 
But if you won't go take your life and run it through this filter first, you really have nothing to say that has any eternal value. You're like the fortune cookie that was right, but you're still a fortune cookie. And we don't need fortune cookies, we need Christians. And Christians take their whole lives and they submit them to King Jesus. Our country doesn't even marginally reflect the values it had when it was founded. Our families don't have the values that are reflected. Our marriages don't have the values that are reflected. If you go look over the last 800 years and you compare your marriage to any other godly couple, you're going to look radically left. And so here's what we get to do. We get to put down all the political flags. We get to put down all the identities that don't involve Christ. And we say, I must radically change my heart first. I must radically make decisions in my life that go through this book. And then I can radically be a change for good. A change for the eternal. Rant over. Here we go. Let God's word be the fuel. You got to get in here. You got to read it. You got to let it be the filter. You can't be prideful either. I know I'm talking to some folks who are highly accomplished. You're all very smart. The brains are well activated. Get the heart and the brain together. And know that whatever sacrifice God calls you to when he reconciles this in your life will be far better 10,000 years from now than whatever sacrifice you choose not to make over the next 10 years. Whether that's how you talk about God in your home, how you spend your money, where you live, all that stuff, put it out to God. Ask him to direct you. Let God's word be the fuel, the filter, and the compass. And what happens then? If that is the case, it says that they get to the end of their road. They drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. Which, by the way, if you just had a sermon like that, you would be asking him to stay too. I keep talking. Like, that's good stuff. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. You got to love the poetic beauty of the gospel. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the new covenant. Take, eat, drink. Jesus I can't see him anymore, but that was him. My faith is secured, not in what I see. I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. And this is why Jesus tells Doubting Thomas, Thomas, you believe because you got to put your fingers in the holes, but there's going to be generations and generations of believers who follow me. And they'll have believed because of the testimony by the words alone. God's word is the power to save. God's word is the power to change your life. God has the power to course correct any nation any family, any person. He's that powerful. In conclusion, I'm excited to be an associate pastor at our church because it means I get to walk alongside you in that journey. This has been a very quick rant. Check this out. Here's just a few things um, that Jesus says that the Bible explicitly teaches. This breaks every single PowerPoint rule. I've ever been taught. <laughs> Jesus explicitly teaches us to be saved, be sanctified, worship, finding a spouse, being married, staying married, having kids, raising kids, being a good neighbor, building a society, being a thorn in that society's sinful butt, be a prophet to a lost nation, be a gospel proclaimer, be a citizen of heaven, be a, be a citizen of a nation, building governments, building houses, self-defense, war, conflict management, when to die, when to live, picking a job, taking a race, saving money, giving money, loving others, hating others, calling others, preaching, discipleship, obedience, submission, respect, 
rails around pools. Did you know that? You should go check out the common equity of the law. And your rail around your pool is something that comes from the Bible, by the way. Um, that'd be fun. Come ask me after service. Civil resistance, prayer, honoring leaders, church attendance, home group attendance, Lord's Supper, baptism, Bible study, reading, meditation, fasting, giving, serving, when to take a slap, when to slap back, food, potlucks, knife carrying, hoping in future resurrection, loving your country without worshiping it, calling people's groups to Christ, how to survive fish attacks, how to live your life like Jesus really rose, which he did for our salvation and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, all these things that you lay before us are things that we want to do. We want to give our lives to you because it means our hearts are going to be set in the right direction. God, I pray this morning that you would use your word to stir our affections for Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you be our compass? Would your word direct our steps? Lord Jesus, no matter where we're at today, we don't have to sit in the shame of the past, but we can sit and say, Lord, this is who I am today. Take who I am and shape it to your will. God, give me the tools to learn and grow so that I might be effective for ministry. And God, I pray over this new associate pastor position, would you just give us hundreds of conversations together as a church that we could be equipped and sharpened and honed for your glory, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.